Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're in this church today or you're listening to us on SoundCloud, praise God. I'm so glad you're here, and so is the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Word says, God says in His Word, anytime we take away from something we're doing and we don't focus on ourselves and we walk according to the Spirit, which is going to church and hearing God's Word, then the Bible says, Romans 8, that this is life. Right? If you walk according to the flesh, it's death, spiritual. And if you walk according to the Spirit, it's life. That's spiritual. So God is pleased. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed. I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of our last days. And this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we always ask God to bless our message and help us understand His Word, because it's not me that teaches you, I just read His Word and And it's the Holy Spirit we know by Scripture that really teaches everybody. So, Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here, Lord God. We thank you so much for your great love and your great mercy for us, Lord. Help us, Lord God, as I prayed uh, right before communion, I think, after worship or before worship or one time, I I, uh, prayed and I pray again, Lord God, but this time for everybody out there that's listening, Lord. I pray that uh, your words today will make an impact on our lives. Lord God, I pray that the truths, your truths, Lord God, we would not only just know them, Lord, but we would live in them. And by that, I pray we'd rest in them, Lord God. Because to know that you love us and you'll take care of us and everything in our lives is in your hands is all nice and well to know. But Lord, if we don't rest in those truths, Lord God, then those truths are foolishness to us. For truth not applied is foolishness, Lord. So help us to concentrate, Lord. Help us to put our daily things aside and just out of our minds. And Lord, help us to be focused on your word today, Lord God. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would teach us, Lord, all that you want us to know today. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So you can turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 today. Again, that's Acts chapter 5. We're just picking up from last week. That's usually how we do it here, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. That's where we're going to be today. But I won't read it and teach it until I give you my thoughts from last week's message. They were of one heart and one one soul, speaking about the early Jerusalem Acts 4 church, where they Luke makes the most amazing statement about it. He says they were of one heart and one soul. And that means, according to the definitions of heart and soul and from Strong's, we looked at that last week, that they were united together 100% in every aspect, spiritual and personal, including their finances and even their material possessions. And by the definitions of one heart and one soul, that meant that they didn't argue nor fight, and they had zero disputes, and they even supported the church of God that he had planted them in financially. As Luke tells us that they sold houses and lands, all of them sold houses and lands, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and then the apostles would distribute them to where the church had need, whoever was in need, you know, buy things or whatever they needed to do with that, those finances. I talked of their radical devotion and how it's one that we never see again, whether in the Bible or out of the Bible, even in the same church as we're going to see in this week in our chapter 5 with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira where they come in and kind of Satan gets his in into the church and this one heart, one soul church loses a piece of themselves here with these two people today. As I close the message speaking about how No other church ever attained to their level of extreme devotion and how even God didn't allow them to continue in that way as just shortly, I think it's Acts chapter 8 if I'm not mistaken, which is just shortly from here, we read about persecution coming and then this church really separating and then going into all the world. But I spoke of how this should not stop all Christians today from copying their ways of love for one another, just not to the same extreme devotion to their own hurt, but with balance right? And being led, right? Copying their ways of helping one another out financially. If you see someone in your congregation, someone that you, a beloved brother or sister in the Lord, help them out. If you have it, if it's not going to cause you to uh, not be able to pay your rent or not be able to buy your own food, help them out. You know, purchase something for them if they need it. You know, whatever the case may be, if they're struggling to pay their rent and you have extra, helping them out, you know, financially. 
Support number two, supporting your church and pastor financially from your heart of willingness, not constraint nor pressure, if they're actually working hard for you. That's what scripture says, laboring in God's word, etc. Not not just uh, somebody that's been given the position and they get up there once a week and they give you a little handout. Oh, just follow this handout and it's all a sermon from a book. That's not a pastor that I would support because they're not laboring hard in the word and in scripture. We've been to churches like that before. And number three, sacrificing our lives and efforts for one another in agape love for one another. Actually, sacrificial love for one another. Some, somebody needs something done? You're, hey, you volunteer? I'm going to go help that person. Oh, somebody's in need of a, of a ride? Hey, I'm going to go give them a ride. Or hey, somebody's in need of this? I'm going to go help them. And using your physical body to go help them physically in some way that they're in need of physically. These are all biblical, good, godly things that God says, yes, my children, do those things. Uh, But anyway, this Acts 4 church was an amazing church, and their love for one another and their church was unequaled. But they lived and practiced church in unrealistic ways, as again, even God did not allow them to continue in those ways. Today, we're going to look at one of those things that I mentioned last week as to the beginning of the loss of this beautiful one heart, one soul church with Ananias and Sapphira. And the title of our sermon, Their Lying Sin their lying sin. So if you want to open up to Acts 5, 1 through 11, we're going to read it, and then we're going to diligently go through it, and we're going to find out what God has to say to us today. Acts 5, verse 1, beginning of a brand new chapter. I love the Bible. Bible says, Luke writes, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? That's important. We'll pick up on that later. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, sorry about that. Then Ananias, hearing words, hearing his words, fell down and breathed his last. Ouch, he died. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she says, yes, so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Luke ends Acts 4 telling of us of a super awesome show of love and devotion by one of the church's members. Remember Joseph or Barnabas, so-called by the disciples or apostles? He went and he sold a piece of land and he came in in front of everybody and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And Remember, he didn't wait. He didn't do it in secret. He did it in front of all the rest of the Christians that were at the church at that time. Remember Acts 4, 24 through 25. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of these things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. Luke writes this as common knowledge that all of them knew. And this was an all right thing to do and a common practice for the Jews. Remember, Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 6, that the poor widow with the might and the kind of rich religious people all came in and they all gave and they all gave kind of in front of one another. And we know it wasn't wrong for them to do because Jesus was there and he actually saw them doing all that and he did not rebuke them or speak against them. He spoke on how she gave more than they did and how they gave less than she because to her her sacrifice counted more but he never said anything about how they gave together and that was something that they shouldn't do and where everyone could see that so in acts 4 all christians in the church are selling houses lands and giving the proceeds of their sales to the church and everyone was doing it all in front of one another and wouldn't you know 
wouldn't you know? This is where the devil found his in into the church and into the hearts of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. I will get to that and why it happened in a little bit. But first, I want you to know something. This is something God wants us to know big time today. It even came up last night. Do you know Satan studies mankind to find our weaknesses? Did you know that? Absolutely. He studies us like a, like a master, master warman. He, he studies us to look for our weaknesses. And then what does he do? He finds those weaknesses and he goes after us full force with a full frontal attack, an all-out attack. And he's a master of it. He's had thousands of years to do so. And I only give this premise because of what happened today and it'll all tie in and end. Just go with me here. Remember the book of Job. It's the oldest book of the Bible, by the way, in case you forgot that, in case you didn't know that. Well, remember what Satan said of Job to God when God asked him in Job 1, 7-10, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears me, or God, and shuns evil? And Satan answers in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? L- listen to what he says now. Now, you have to know this about somebody before you can tell somebody else. So he knew these things. He had been studying Job. He knew these things. Have you not made a hedge around him? He knew that God had put a hedge around Job. God had some kind of powerful, like Satan couldn't get through to attack him, force field, kind of spiritual force field around Job, a- a- around his household. And he goes on to say, and around all that he has on every side. It's like God put a big old Holy Spirit dome around Job and all his lands and possessions and family members and kids and servants and everything. And when Satan and the angels tried to come, fallen angels tried to come and attack, they were like, oh, I can't get in. Man, God's protecting this guy. He noticed that. Listen to what else he says. You have blessed the work of his hands. Satan saw God was given Job blessings. God made Job's fields grow and his animals multiply like crazy. And Satan noticed that. And his possessions you have increased in the land. Notice that he studied him carefully and he knew all those really intricate things about Job. And so then, you know, we know the story. God, or maybe you don't know the story, but God goes on to tell him, hey, well, hey, all that you can, go ahead and take, you know, whatever you want. I'll let you attack him. And, you know, God has his reasons and I'm not going to get into them today. But nevertheless, Satan went after him and basically took everything away from him almost, except for just some minuscule things that, you know, he let him have. And then we go down to Job 2, 3 through 4, and listen what else. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears me or God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity. I know you thought you could get him to blaspheme me, but still he holds his integrity. Still he hasn't done it. Although he says you incited me against him to destroy him without, without cause. Verse 4, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Say knew, because he'd been studying man for thousands of years. At that point, maybe not thousands, probably uh, maybe a thousand or so. He knew that mankind loves their life. And their lives are so important to mankind that we'll give everything to keep our lives, to save our lives. Look at the medical science today. People spend billions of dollars a year doing what? trying to keep themselves alive. Satan studied mankind. Satan knew that. This is what he does. He just knows our weaknesses. He knows he knew Job's weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. And he attacked Job and he attacks us accordingly. Because we know that God allows the righteous, especially Psalm 11, to be tested. And he probably knows more about us and our weaknesses, especially if we love Christ, than we actually probably know about our own weaknesses of our own selves. And did you know that Satan even studied Jesus to find his weaknesses, to attack him? For there were times when even Jesus Christ was weak according to his flesh. Luke 4 tells us that Satan tempted Christ after he went into the wilderness for a full 40 days. Satan was after him, attacking him, right? And what a better time to attack somebody, right? They go into the wilderness, they fasting everything, food and and, and people and, and the love and the comforts of home and their own bed and they go out into the wilderness. And what a better time to go after somebody, man. He's all alone. And what does a wolf do? A wolf looks, what does he look to do? He doesn't run into the pack and attack everybody in the pack. No, he looks for the straggler. 
the one that's kind of left behind, the one that's kind of, he's not quite up in the midst of the pack. And this is, of course, what Satan did to Jesus Christ. And then, but after those 40 days, sadly, Matthew 4, 1 through 4 tells us that after Christ had been through the full 40 days, after he was weak in certain areas, then Satan really came on strong. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit of the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1 through 4, and tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Hmm, interesting. He studied Jesus Christ. Satan, the master at finding our weaknesses, has strategically studied Christ and found his biggest weakness and the most opportune time to go after him and do that. And he was hungry, not eating, think of it, for 40 days, not eating. Wow. And he knew the first attack was against Jesus Christ's biggest weakness, his hunger. If, if you are the Son of God, good, make food. He tested him, tempted God. Think of it. Wow. Satan's a master of finding our weaknesses and exploiting them to try to get us to sin and fall away from God. We'll talk on this more as we look at how he ended up getting into this early Jerusalem church through the gift of Ananias and Sapphira because he did it through their biggest weakness as well, too. You may not know that. So let's take a closer look at this account to see how that devil found his way into their church, into the hearts of, or in the hearts of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, in their giving of their gift that I just mentioned. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So we've already talked about this. They sold their land, and he kept back part of the proceeds. So he sold it for such a price, but yet he kept back some of it gave some to the church, his wife also being aware of it, and brought in a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Seemingly, no sin here, right? No evil, no Satan getting in there, right? I mean, that doesn't seem to be, right? Seemingly. We have to be careful of our seemings, though, here. Um, They simply sell a piece of land that they had owned to keep back some of the money they sold it for, give the rest of the church. What's wrong with that? That's generous, right? That's generous, right? Well, Nothing's wrong with it if that's all Ananias and his wife Sapphira actually did. We need to be careful to say they were innocent before we read the full account of what they did, though, okay? Peter sure didn't think that they were innocent. Look to what he said in verses 3 and 4 about their gift unto the Lord. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Ouch. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So Peter seems to believe that Ananias sinned by lying to God and his Holy Spirit by Satan's tempting, doesn't he? He sure did say that, didn't he? In fact, Peter believes here that Satan has infiltrated their church through Ananias. But how? Well, I have to admit, up to this point, it doesn't seem if, as if Ananias has sinned. And it seems as if Peter was just being an overly religious kind of righteous jerk like the traditional Jewish leaders of his time, doesn't it? On the surface of, the account, of this account, it seems as if Peter was angry with Ananias and accuses him of following Satan for not giving the church all the proceeds of the sale of the land that he sold, as if this was a mandate for giving, right? Uh, sell land, sell houses, give all to the church. That, and, and, like this was a mandate, right? It sure seems that way. And people could really easily look down on Peter and God for this section because it does look like Peter says that this Ananias, uh, uh, that he's because that he wants all the money because he's greedy for the money of the sale of their land. It does look that way. But again, we need to be careful that we don't just judge Peter or God here because things are not always what they seem. That's very true. We have to be careful about that. Is it, is it truth? Does it hold up? Now, before we find out how Satan find his way in into the church of Jerusalem through the gift of Ananias and Sapphira, through their weakness that Satan exploited, look at what happens to Ananias for Peter and what he, what he accuses him of. Read verses 5 and 6. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now, 
Either God smote him for his supposed sin, or his conscience was so convicted by what Peter said because he knew he was in sin that he sadly he fell over dead for what he did. Now, I had mentioned last week that I thought that it was God who killed or smote Ananias for his sin, but maybe you think that it was Ananias' conscience that convicted him of his wrong that he did. But whatever your opinion, you have to admit, whatever you may think, whether it was God or Ananias, you have to know here that Ananias died because of sin. He was not innocent. And uh, the question is not, did he sin, but rather, how did Ananias commit a lying sin by giving his gift of the sale of the land? Well, we know either way, just, just by what happened to Ananias, that he was in sin and lied to the Holy Spirit for something he did because of what happened to him, right? He died, right? Either A, his conscience was so convicted of his lying sin so bad that he was like, oh, And then he falls over dead, right? Because guess what? If he's innocent, you're not going to fall over dead if your conscience convicts you, right? If if what Peter said, I've been accused before of things, and my conscience wasn't convicted, and I didn't, I was like, ah, whatever, they're an idiot. You know, they're not right. I didn't do that. I was was right. So if you're not convicted, you're not going to fall over dead because you knew you didn't do anything wrong. But he did. So either A, he was convicted his conscience by his conscience and fell over dead, or B... God knew he'd sinned against him by lying, and he smote him to death for his sin because God is righteous, right? And would not have done something like this, like kill a man, if the man had done nothing wrong. Abraham says, right, shall the righteous judge of all the earth not do what's right? We know that God's not going to smite a man for doing nothing wrong. So we know either way here, Ananias, he's guilty of lying in in, in somehow some kind of big sin, but just how? How did he lie? And what caused him to lie is the bigger question. Read verses 7 8 to find out the why, the how and the why he sinned. Now it was about three hours later when his wife Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. That's important. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Notice this had to do with the price of how much the land was sold for. And she says, Yes, of course, so much. Well, there we see the lying of Ananias and how the devil worked into this church in Jerusalem through, the, through his weakness by him and his wife to the gift of the Lord that they gave of the sale of the land. And here we see that it wasn't just Ananias' sin, but it was also his wife Sapphira's because they conspired together to lie against God and his Holy Spirit or to God and his Holy Spirit. At this point, you may be saying, Pastor Ed, where? I just don't see it. How do you see them lying and sinning in what Sapphira said? I just... How do you see it? I just don't see it. Well, that's a good point, and it can be easily missed, but we have to look carefully at what she said and some other things to see the lying sin uh, that just cost Ananias his life. Let me explain. Sapphira comes in not knowing what has happened, right? And so before she finds out, Peter asks him right away, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, so much. And remember, Ananias had brought in some of the proceeds of the sale of their land, and they laid them at the apostles' feet. So keep all that wisdom and keep all that knowledge in your mind right now, right? This tells me that Peter was testing her to see if she was in some kind of deception because of what he says, right? He says, hey, tell me if you sold the land for so much. So there was an amount that he was asking her if they really sold the land for that certain amount. And that's what Peter wanted to know. You see, because here is the only way this works, okay? Lying doesn't mean that you hold back proceeds, right? Lying is, or lying is when you hold back something, right? Lying is not just giving all. You see, Ananias had said that they sold the land for something like, let's say, $100, when they actually sold it for something like $200. But when he brought in their gift in front of everyone in the church, he and then his wife three hours later, remember, claimed that the $100 was the full amount they sold the land for, lying and deceiving God and the Holy Spirit, but they were really trying to deceive man. They literally lied to God and his spirit, as well as all those that were there saying that they gave the whole amount of the sale of the land when they didn't give the full sales price because they kept back some but they said they gave the full amount. That's why Peter was testing Sapphira. Did you sell it for so much? Oh, yes, for so much. Well, how do we know this for sure, though? Remember verse 3, Peter says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie 
to the Holy Spirit. Well, lying is not keeping back part of the money of the gift. Lying is saying you're giving the whole amount as a gift, yet you're only giving a part. Their lie here was in three parts. One, how much they gave as a gift. Two, the amount they said they sold the land for. And three, how much money they said they gave for the sale of the land. That's why Peter said, verse 4, while it remained, was it not in your or was it not your own? And was it not in your own control? You see, that's important. If Peter was a religious jerk, he would have demanded all the proceeds and said and said it that way, right? Hey, you should have given the whole amount. But he didn't say that. He said, while it was your own, was it not in your own control? Uh, there he says to Ananias that the money they gained from the sale of the land was their own, meaning that they didn't have to give any as a gift if they didn't want to. Hey, it was yours. You had it uh, when you when you sold it. All that money that you sold it for was your own. But instead of just keeping it all or not giving any of it or, or giving all of it and not keeping any of it, they decided to give just some, hold some back, yet lie and say that they gave the full amount, lying to God's Holy Spirit first, of course, but also then Peter and the other Christian present that were all in this process, right? What a stupid thing to do. They could have even decided to sell that land and just bring in some of the proceeds to just let the truth of how much they gave it and sold it for, right? They could have done that. Or the last option, they could have just given a part of what they sold it for and said nothing of how much they sold it for at all. That would have been all, every single one of them would have been the smarter choices to, you know, to do. Hey, just brought in a gift and said, we have a gift for the church of God and here you go, right? They didn't have to give an amount at all, but yet they did. They said, yes, we sold it for so much. We don't have that so much, but we know that Peter says you sold it so much. He said, yes. You see, God loves a cheerful giver. He's not into giving under constraint, and neither was Peter. But anyway, that was the stupid, I'll call add that word now, the stupid lying sin of Ananias and Sapphira, where they let Satan into the church of God by their gift. Now, you see, we've established that they did in fact sin and lie to God and Holy Spirit and the Christians that were there and present for this fiasco. And that wasn't Peter's uh, some being some religious money-hungry jerk. And that wasn't God being in the wrong either for smiting in an iris, soon to be Sapphira, because God does not do anything unjust at all. But the bigger question here is not did they sin again. How did they sin? How, why, why did they do this? Why did they lie? What did they do this for? Well, remember I told you earlier that Satan studies us to find our greatest weaknesses. And that once he does, he comes and he attacks us in full force, right? And, and here, uh, Satan is a master of finding our weaknesses and exploiting them and to try to get us to sin and to try to get us a wedge between us and God. And lastly, I told you he had, that he ended up getting into this early Jerusalem church through their gift of Ananias and Sapphira because he did it through their biggest weakness. Well, here we can really look into the situation and then their hearts to see the why they would have lied to God and the Holy Spirit. That's probably the most major part of the sermon is the why. And we're going to discuss it at the end because the Bible was written for us to learn from. And of course, we know that we're not supposed to lie, but why did they lie to God and the Holy Spirit? That's, that's probably the biggest main focus that I would love you to take away from this sermon because maybe everybody here or anybody listening online, they don't know the why. But I'm going to give it to you. Remember they gave their gift. Here's the why they sinned. Here's the why they even lied. Remember, they gave their gift in front of the whole church, right? They came in, everybody present, as they were all doing, and they gave their gift in front of all that were present. Then, right before Ananias fell dead, Peter told him, you've not lied to men, you've lied to God. Well, wait a minute, those are huge keys to finding out why they did what they did and committed the lying sin. So here you go, you see, they knew that many, if not hundreds or even thousands of Christians, would see them give their gift. But they wouldn't just see them give their gift. They would also hear them say, Oh, we're giving you all the sale of this land that we just sold. We're giving it to all, we're giving all of it to the church. 
and they would hear the apostles tell them that they gave him all the proceeds of the sale of the land. But even though they didn't, what were they doing? Well, they were boasting. Whoa, look at what I did. Oh, look at this great thing that we've done. Oh, we're, gi- we're giving all the money to all the church. Oh, here, take it all. Well, why do people boast? Why do people make a big deal of what they do in front of others? Even Ananias and Sapphira. Why do they do that, right? Why? Do they do it because they're trying to please God? Do they do it because they're trying to show God? Oh, God, we all went like he can't see, right? No, no, no. Why do people make a big deal of what they do in front of others? Because they, like Ananias and Sapphira, here's why. Because they want to deceive or lie to the other people or Christians that are all around to make them think that they're very generous. To make them think they're very pious or over-pious and so that they would look upon them and highly for their gift, right? They were, they were looking. And what happens when people think that another is very pious? Or, or made a tremendous and extreme sacrifice. What happens when people think that about others? Uh, the desired response to that someone is that they make a big, the person that makes a big deal is that people exalt them. They were looking at being exalted. Their biggest weakness was that they wanted to be seen by others as important and exalted by others and seen by others as special. And Satan saw it, he exploited it, and tempted them to commit the lying sin, and they fell for it. They wanted to hear people whisper, or even out loud behind their back, something like, Oh, wow, did you just see what Ananias and Sapphira did? Oh, man, I want to go sell all my land now and give it, because, man, look at how awesome they are. Look at how holy they are. They really must love God. Right? That's what they wanted to hear from people. This is a terrible sin because it falls within these three dangerous sins. You see, when ministers or Christians fall away from God or Christ, usually it is because of one of these huge and dangerous regions, the dangerous three G's, we'll call them today. The dangerous three G's. Glitz, gold, and or, depending on your, if you're a man or woman minister, girls. But it's just an easy catchphrase. Glitz, gold, and girls. What is glitz? According to Merriam-Webster, it is a very fancy and attractive quality that is associated with rich or famous people. They wanted others to look at them as being famous, important, special, and they wanted to be exalted by all that saw them. Similar, really, remember, Dathan and Abiram and Korah. What were they trying to do? They stood up against Moses. We want people to notice us. Well, you, why do you have to be the one that everybody notices? No, 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 no. Look at us. And look what God did to them as well, too. Destroyed them as well, too. Gold, the second one. The running after riches, wealth, things that really, when you start running after them, what do they become? They become your master right? Glitz, then gold, and then girls for men ministers and guys for girl ministers, really. So you could say the last one, glitz, gold, and guys or gals, really. Uh, The seduction of the opposite sex and the allurement of the attraction of the opposite sex unto really what happens then if you're allured. You're you're lured into fornication or you're lured into adultery because that's what it leads to. If you have this kind of, oh, I want that person. You're not thinking about marriage, as a man or a woman, you're thinking about sex. And of course, this sin separates people from God when you practice it, uh, whether you're born again or not. And of course, these three categories are man's biggest weaknesses, and Satan knows this. A lot, within a lot of people, they want to be famous. Within all so many people, they want to be famous. And that doesn't change when you get born again and get saved. You're that flesh man. Oh, it still wants to be exalted. Oh, it still wants to be held high and people to look at. Oh, look at how wonderful that guy or girl is. Oh, my gosh. And then all the money, all the riches, all the wealth. Oh, who doesn't in their inner selves... Who doesn't want to have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and not have to work and live on some island somewhere and relax and sit underneath the sun and drink an iced tea? Who doesn't want that? And who doesn't love in their own flesh 
the wonderful love of a man or a woman and, of course, not necessarily a righteous way of a marriage, right? These are all mankind's biggest weaknesses, and Satan knows this. He knows this, and so they are Satan's biggest temptations and lures that he throws out there to try to catch God's kids and wrap them up to commit willful and, and, and you know outright sin before God to become prodigal or backslidden. That's what he's aiming. That's what he's trying to do to you. That's what if you're born again, if you're if you're saved, and and to help us put us back on the path of destruction as we were before we came to the knowledge of the truth. And here, Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of the sin of glitz. They were seeking exaltation. They wanted everyone there to look highly upon them for their contribution and to look at them and say, oh, wow, oh, wow, look at them. Oh, they're so wonderful. And really, the root of their glitz desire, what was it? Can you guys guess? It's one big one. It's a huge one. It's all over the Bible. It's called pride. Look at me. Pride. I want to be the main one. I want to be. I want to be. And God tells us, Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction. Didn't we see that with Ananias and Sapphira? Soon to be Sapphira. And the haughty spirit before a fall. And because of these two conspiring to lie and deceive others there, but instead they lied to God and the Holy Spirit, look what happened to Sapphira because of her and her husband's lying sin. Verses 9 and 10. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. Wow. So God ends up smiting or killing both of them for their lying sin and their pride. They both die as a result. So sad. What was the reaction of the church as a whole? Our last verse, verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. And this should have been their reaction as this was God's desired reaction for them. Right? This should be their Desired reaction, and this was God's desired response for them. God, being a good daddy, the best daddy ever. Amen. Wanted everyone that was there, that was his, to see this and truly what? Truly fear him. This is what God desires. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In a reverent way, of course, and refrain from sinning, for God hates sin and doesn't want his kids to sin. Or make a practice of it especially. We may sin, you know, because we're all just human and frail, but do we make an excuse for our sin? And then that's where God says, oh, I hate sin. He hates all sin, really, but especially the practice. Remember John, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. God hates Sin. Peter on sin and holiness for God's kids. 1 Peter 1, 13-16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, listen, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, that'd be of the flesh, sex and money and gold and glitz and all that stuff we just talked about today, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. That's a command. That's not saying because we're, I've heard this before, believe it or not. Because you're saved, you, you are holy for God is holy. Now that's not what, that's not the context of what Peter writes there, ladies and gentlemen. He says, but as he called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's a command. And then he goes on in case people got confused, but people don't read on, verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Another command from God. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord God. God is holy. And once someone comes to be his and becomes born again, he expects and commands us to put the death, the deeds of the flesh, as we just read Romans 8, with effort, actually, with, with, with striving, right? And no longer just sin unrestrained, right? And especially not with prideful ways like Ananias and Sapphira did here. Because, did you know, unlike many other things that God says in his word are an abomination to him, homosexuality and things like that, did you know that pride is an abomination to God? 
Wow, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. These six thing the Lord, the six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And he didn't just mean there the seventh thing was an abomination. He meant these six I hate and are an abomination. He kind of just says it that way. And look what he says. Look at these seven things. A proud look. Ooh, that's pride. God hates pride. In fact, God thinks pride is an abomination right? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run into evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And, and, and here, I don't know if you caught this, because God showed that he just jumped this right out to me as he put this verse in this, in this sermon today. By my estimation and judgment of this section and verse in Acts 5 of what we study today with Ananias and Sapphira, guess what? And the way Ananias and Sapphira willfully and purposely lied, it looks to me like they committed about three to five of these actual things that were an abomination to God, right? Look, look they, had, they were proud. They lied. They had heart that, that devised wicked plans. They didn't just wake up that day and go, oh, let's just do that right now. No, they devised that evil lie against to try to deceive the people, to get them to be exalted highly. That's for feet that run or swift to evil. They, were, they ran to the evil and a false witness who speaks lies. So five things out of the seven Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of in their coming and trying to make the people think that they were so special and they were running after that glitz they really weren't running after the gold they if they were running after the gold they could have just kept all their money and not given any to god and shut up their heart and then they would have had all the money and running after the gold right not that that wouldn't have been sin but definitely less of a sin than what they did right and as a sad result of their lying sin they both perished fell down dead and since the bible says first corinthians 6 that the unrighteous or those who practice unrighteousness will not inherit eternal life and in revelation 21 8 jesus said that all liars shall have that part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone we know that he is speaking of those who make a willful practice of lying i'm doubtful that ananias and sapphira actually went to heaven to stay we know that you know everybody goes to heaven but not everybody stays for everybody goes and stands before the judgment seat of Christ and God Almighty. But not everybody stays because we know that God casts out most and a few stay for a few uh, are, are really, really desiring Him and have a walk with Him. Uh, for they died really, I see it in unrepentant sin here, in the willful practice of all those abominations to God that He told us of in Proverbs 6 as the why that they lied in their lying sins. Really sad, isn't it? What can we learn from this account of Ananias and Sapphira and how they listened to Satan and lied to deceive mankind, but rather lied to God and His Holy Spirit instead in the action that He took against them for doing it? What can we learn about these things? Well, as I said, the Bible was written for many reasons, but one of those reasons was to be an instruction booklet for God's kids and how He expects people to live after they come to be his and born again. That's, what, that's one of the reasons why God wrote his word, as to show his children, hey, this is what I expect from you now that you're saved. You get hired at a job, and they don't just go say, oh, we'll just you know, go out there and talk to the manager all day long and have fun. No, what do they do? They, they give you training. To do what? To teach you how to work for their business. That's what they do. And then before you're even hired, you get a handbook that says, hey, these are the things going to be required for you if we hire you. Well, that's the same thing. The Bible is God's handbook to show his children how he expects us to live after we become born again. And one of those huge ways to God, 1 Peter 15, 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, that's a command because it's written, be holy for I am holy. You see, after someone's born again, God expects us to, uh, one of the things that he expects from us is for us to abstain from sin, to strive to live like him, to strive to live keeping his commands, to strive to live in holiness, to strive to live a life of loving God with our actions and not just our words and not just well whatever i can sin and make a practice because you know what jesus loves me 
And I can do anything I want because, you know, Jesus loves me. I heard a statement on a Christian radio station this last week, and it really bothered me. They said something along the lines of, how, does a, how is a person supposed to be, you know, that's born again, how are they supposed to live out their days? How are they supposed to, you know, live unto death, you know, in their days with God, and, you know, until they die? And, and the radio personality said simply something like, relationship. Well, I got a problem with that, just that one word. Because what does it mean? Whose relationship? According to who? Relationship according to mankind only? Or a relationship according to biblical relationship in the Bible, what's fine in the Bible. Now, yes, a truly born again person is supposed to have a relationship with God, and, and that's where it's all, and that's where it all starts. But when you don't explain the biblical relationship that God expects His kids to have with Him, then we can say that relationship is, oh, just lovey dovey, oh, kissy poo, kissy poo. I'll just spend time with God every day and and just you know, talk to God all day long and then, you know, just live on out and blow him a kiss and, you know, give him a fake, you know, give him a, a you know, like a hug, you know, pretend hug because I can't hug his real physical body. And we could just say relationship is like that, right? That's what we could say. And, and but is that all that the Bible says the relationship with God Almighty and Jesus Christ should be? Not at all. A big capital no, in fact. This loving and spending time with God and Jesus Christ is only partly what God wants from those whom he redeems. He also commands obedience to his word and abstinence from sin, which is not what relationship with human beings entails, right? Uh, I'm not obedient to my wife or kids or friends or brothers or sisters in Christ, and I don't keep their words, right? And I don't, I'm not concerned with sin because of them, Right? I just have a, we walk together and we talk together and we do things together. I don't obey their words. I don't not sin because, oh, they're there. That's not, we see, so, but relationship with God is different than relationship with human beings. And if you think I'm wrong about this and you think, oh, Pastor Ed, oh, you're getting into works. Well, yeah. For grace we are saved through faith, not of works, at least any man should boast, and it's not of ourselves. But God predestined us to walk in works, in good works that he has for us. Galatians, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Read the 10. Don't, don't leave off the 10, right? And, and if you think I'm wrong, Jesus surmises everything I just said in one verse. And it covers start to finish. Covers salvation, how God expects you to walk as far as holiness and sin is concerned, and it, and it talks to you about how we're supposed to live even unto death, how we're supposed to, what we're supposed to do in our actions, right? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, listen to this, if anyone desires to come after me, so they haven't done it yet, but they're kind of they're desiring. Hey, oh, I, think I, want, I think I want to know Jesus. Yeah, I think I want to know Jesus. Just pray this prayer. I'm sorry, that's not all he said. That's the American gospel. I'm sorry, there's a biblical gospel, and then there's an American gospel. And that's the American gospel. This this is the biblical gospel, right? We know that Jesus Christ came, lived, died. But now here's what he expects of anyone he says desires to follow after me. He says this, Let him deny himself and take up his cross, Luke adds daily there, and then follow me. What's deny self? Deny self is where salvation happens. Deny self is surrender. Deny self is when you decide, you decide to follow Jesus, then what he says is, okay, now here's your first step. Take yourself off of the throne of your life and put Jesus Christ on there. And he then becomes your master and you yourself are not your master anymore. That means that all your decisions from this point on will kind of go through him. He's your master. Hey, daddy, master, is it okay if I do this or that? Or, or Daddy Master, what does your word say about this or that? Not just you live your life for you in the ways you want, any amount on. Now, Jesus said, if you want to start a relationship with me, make me your master. Surrender to me. Give yourself to me. That's number one, deny self. Make him master. The beginning of the walk with God. You cannot walk with God in, in, in his relationship unless you do that first. You can say, oh, I can do this and I can do that, I can work and I can do it. No, 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 that's not his. That's your, you're going to go in another door. And Jesus said, if they don't come in by the my gate, um, they're going to be thrown out. Okay. So if you want, don't want to be thrown out, that's number one, make him your master. Uh, number two, 
He says, he tells us how to live, then what, how we should regard sin and you know, things. He says, take up your cross. Well, what do we associate the cross with? What? We associate the cross with the death that Christ died on the cross, right? He didn't live on the cross. He died, yeah. right? He died, right? So after salvation, this is in Jesus' name, it's second. In our walk with him, after salvation, from this point on, you should no longer live slave to the loss of the flesh or the practice of sinfulness in and of yourself, right? Romans 8, 12 through 14, is exa- Paul said the same thing. Just one place. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to, to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For listen, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Well, we know that's not death according to the flesh because everybody dies, right? If, I, if everybody dies and I live according to the flesh, why would Paul have singled out here brethren? That, he's talking to Christians here. Christians. Notice that's brethren, that's Christians. He's not talking about outsiders or secular people. He's talking about born again, born again, saved Christians. If we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a spiritual death. For if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you, you pick up your cross, he says, you will live. You will live. Spiritual life. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And then last, number three, how should you live then? <laughs> what should your lifestyle look like? What should, what should you kind of go around doing? Well, three, easy, pretty, pretty easy. Follow me. Jesus, follow me. Surrender to me. Don't live for the lusts of your flesh anymore. Live, live to God. Be heavenly minded. And three, follow me. That's the biblical way that we approach Jesus. Not the American way. That's the biblical way that God said that you must be saved. And how do you stand in these three? Uh, how do you stand, I should say, in these three perfect summations of relationship with God, not relationship with man? How do you stand in surrender? Life of striving for holiness. Then following Jesus as an example as to how you live after you've been saved. How do you stand in those three categories? These were not suggestions. And if you claim to be a born-again Christian, then these should be the way your life is headed and the way you should be striving for daily. And you should not be making an excuse for the practice of any sin because, well, you know, Jesus just loves me. This is not what God said. If you're living in the bondage to sin, the practice of any sinfulness, Romans 8, 12 to 14 said, remember, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And that is a spiritual death. And he, he thought, this is no born again, not born again. If you live according to the flesh, you will die eternally. Not physically now because everybody dies. You will die eternally. But if you live according to the Spirit... You will live. If you live according to that surrendered to Jesus Christ, that I'm striving for sinlessness, I'm striving to follow Christ, then you'll have life. Not if we're living according to the flesh. Do you live like you fear God? Have you denied self? Then are you now crucifying your flesh with its passions, remember? Striving with all you can to follow God and to keep His ways and not sin. And are you following Jesus and following the examples that He gave you of how to live? Please examine yourselves today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, You that believe yourselves to be born again, maybe you are, but how do you view sin and a life of holiness? 2 Peter 2, 20-22 warns us of this. If, if you, or for if, after they or you, have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, well, you have to, to be escaped, you have to be saved. Because nobody, unless you're saved, you don't escape the pollutions of the world. If, you're not, if, you're not, if you don't become born again. So this is talking about a born-again child of God that has escaped the pollutions of the world through their knowledge of Christ. That means they, they surrender to Him. They, you know, then they again become entangled in and overcome by. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Ouch. 
For it had been better for them not to know the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her, wallowing in the mire. So be careful, Christians, and see how you view sin. And just look at 16.24 in Matthew uh, of a relationship with God. Deny self, surrender, pick up cross, crucify your flesh. Live holiness. Don't live for sin. And follow after Jesus. Maybe you're not even a Christian today, or maybe you've realized that you're not right with God because you miss out on any one of these three categories that Jesus said that I just mentioned, right? Maybe, maybe you have denied yourself, but you know time has gone on, but you know, you know, boy, this is hard following Jesus. And you've taken your lordship back. Or maybe you've denied self and then, you know, you, you abstain and then you were really going on. And then, oh, man, boy, I love those ladies. Man, I love those boys. Boy, I love the wealth of that world. Man, it looks so good. And maybe you've fallen off the wagon in that regard. Maybe you've lusted. Maybe now you're lusting after the things of the world again. Maybe those things are your masters again. And maybe you decided to follow Jesus, but then, you know, well, boy, when I follow Jesus, boy, people don't like me. (laughs) Wow. So maybe you kind of stop following Jesus, but you you still love God. Well, the Bible says Jesus gave a formula. Deny self, pip cross, and follow after me. And this is how somebody that loves God has to have a relationship with God according to God, not according to me, according to God. To God. So wherever you are, if you're not totally surrendered still today, picking up your cross, denying self, you know, picking up cross and crucifying flesh and living for Christ and following Christ. If you're not there, then you're not on the path to permanent eternal life when you die. You're on the path of your own way and you've made up a God of your own design. It's not the God of the Bible. So I implore you today, if this is you, or you've maybe never known, but you're, you, you're desiring to follow, you know, you're thinking about you know, following Jesus. Well, the Bible says your first step should be repent. And in repentance is where you make that change of mind. You, just, you say, man, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of living this way. I'm, I'm surrendering to Jesus right now. Jesus, please, here I am. That's your first step. No matter where you are, if you've fallen off or whether you've never known, your first step is repentance. Your first step brings you to surrender. And then let all the rest go to God's recipe and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus Christ. Surrender, deny self. Right? Surrender, deny self. Then strive to live the holy ways that God told you to live. Then follow Jesus till you die. This is what God wants for you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for the way to salvation, Lord God. For we know that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, Lord God. But just because he lived and died and rose again, Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't mean that everybody's saved. For John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But just because you died and you love the whole world doesn't make everybody right with you either. Lord, for as too many as received him, John 1, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just because you did all these wonderful things, Lord God. And that is a huge fallacy in the American gospel. As I've heard a preacher speak on, oh, speak on his thousands of member congregation as if they were all yours. Oh, God, help them. Please, God, help them. And Lord, turn them to you. Show them through my message, Lord. Throw them through the message of the Bible that I read from your word, Lord. It's it's right there. No word does it say everybody is. It says many will go the way of destruction, in fact, and few will find life, Lord. That's what the Bible says. That's not me. That's what the Bible says. So, Lord, help people. Help the people. Let this message get out, Lord God. And get to the world, Lord God, and get to those people that even think that they're yours, but they're, they're, they're forsaking you in one of those three things. They haven't denied themselves, or, or they don't care about sin, and they're just, man, sin, it's all right. I can sin. God loves me. I'm all right. Or, or three, or they're just really just not following Jesus anymore. 
or get to them. Get to them, Lord, and bring them to repentance. Bring them back to those three things. Lord, that's what you said, Jesus, not me. Please, God, bring people to repentance, that they would truly follow you according to your way, Lord, not their own way. Lord, for you to be their God in their lives, the God of the Bible, Lord, you, the God of the Bible, not the God that they made up in their own minds. Please, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And I pray salvation, Lord God, for all that listen or all that will ever listen to this message, Lord God. Your way, not their way, because there's only salvation in you and your way. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.